0: Hey everybody, my name is Rob Shear, and I'm the founder of a national nonprofit called Comfort Cases. I'm also an advocate for children in our foster care system, a public speaker, an author of a book, A Forever Family, but most importantly, I am the father of four amazing children.
1: Hi, I'm Dana McKay, and I saw Rob on The Ellen Show, and when I realized his organization was based right here where I live, I knew I had to get involved. I'm also a social media consultant, a radio host, a podcast producer, and a mother of two children.
0: See, our country's foster care system is shattered, and this podcast is about how we as a community can come together to bring about change, changing the system, and changing the lives of children in care.
1: Welcome to the Fostering Change podcast. We are so happy to have Maureen Flatley back on our Fostering Change podcast today. And since we have so much going on in our country, the coronavirus, so many things have been shut down. And while most of us are just kind of dealing with the stress of all this new normal and the comfort of our own homes, children are still entering foster care. Children are still um, having to figure out ways to take care of themselves. Children who have aged out of foster care have been kicked out of their doors. There are kids who are, you know, there's there's nowhere for them to go right now because their places where they're usually safe are not there anymore because of this crisis. And so Maureen has been, you know, she's been very active in advocating for kids in care on a regular basis because they need it. But now during this crisis, it seems like, you know, the people running the show have just kind of forgotten about these kids who really need help right now. So, Maureen, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh,
2: it's good to be with you, Dana.
0: It's amazing. I mean, you're, you're actually the most regular guest that we've ever had because I think you're <laughs> one of the smartest people I've ever known. And so, I love the fact that we can come to you and you really do make. It makes sense, and that's what we as listeners want. I mean, we we started this podcast to educate our our public about the foster care system, child welfare system, adoption, all of that, and and this is now a big part of it. You know, um, and so I have several questions to start out with. Number one, the coronavirus is now set in. We are in a state of emergency. I know your state's in a state of emergency. What happens to children who were, let's say that their adoption was supposed to be signed? Have they stopped all of the adoption signings? I That, that came into my mind this morning when I woke up. I was like, because yesterday... And I almost start crying. But the two days ago was my son's um, Tristan and Grayson's um, adoption day. It was the day that we had signed their their papers eight years ago. I remember the party. I remember the judge actually had to go to another courtroom because we there were so many people that showed up to watch the signing of this adoption. And I thought about that yeah. special day, and then I thought, okay, is that just not happening right now because of this?
2: So one of the most immediate things that happened, Rob, when this crisis started to break, and keep in mind that the crisis of COVID is hardest is hitting hardest the states that have the largest population. So as you and I have discussed in the past, 75% of foster kids live in the ten most populous states, including New York, Illinois, and California. And the, one of the first things that happened is that the court shut down. So That's important for a lot of different reasons. So obviously, we're not going to have adoption finalized. We hope, we don't know, but we hope that at least those children are in pre-adopted placement. So whether it's been finalized or not, they're with the families that they're going to live with forever. So that would be good. But the bigger issue is that if you have kids that are at risk for abuse and neglect, removals probably aren't happening at the same rate. Court hearings to dispose of decision-making are probably not happening. So, for instance, if you have kids, and this is the population that I'm most concerned about right now, you've got kids that are in group homes that maybe were going to transition to a family-based placement. You had kids that were on the bubble to get into a pre-adopted placement, but those things often require court involvement to advance the kids in the system. And then, of course, when you talk about removal from dangerous situations, we hope, and I'm anecdotally hearing, that local law enforcement and um, local child welfare programs are trying to be responsive to those most pressing calls, but we really can't say for sure that that's what's happening. So the courts closing down has had a huge impact on what is or isn't happening on the system. I also
1: saw something about kids who were anticipating being able to have visitation with their biological parents, then not right. being able to because of the court system being shut down. And I think that can also be disappointing for kids too, p- parents that are trying to work on reunification and that coming to a halt too.
2: Right. And in another way too, Dana, because even in those cases where they don't need the court involvement, it, can, it first of all, everybody's, trying to be socially distancing and socially isolated. And so if perhaps you, your caseworker was going to take you for that visitation, those visitations have probably by and large been shut down nearly as a public health consequence. Um, but then the other problem that we're seeing, and I'm, I'm certainly seeing it in the healthcare systems of law enforcement, is as the workforce contracts, because people are either being forced to self-isolate because they've been exposed or because they are actually sick, the, the ability of workers to facilitate various movement in the system is virtually non-existent. It,
1: yeah, it's like everything has just come to a standstill and these kids are just, once again, the ones that are left suffering and in limbo.
2: Correct. You know, we, we think about how we're, we're all paying attention to our own kids, and our own families, and, you know, FaceTiming every day with our grandchildren because we can't drive three miles to go see them in person right now. But for these kids, and you have to keep in mind, on a regular day in foster care, these kids are oftentimes in very isolated situations. They may or may not be receiving adequate health care on a good day, and so one of the concerns that I have, and we really don't have any knowledge about this yet, is if you look at a universe of children who are not receiving regular care, who perhaps are not getting their vaccinations, who perhaps are not seeing a doctor on a regular basis, and maybe have weakened immune systems because of poor nutrition or some underlying condition, asthma, allergies, being on the autism spectrum, whatever it is, these kids are so much more vulnerable to an opportunistic infection of some kind. So we're really concerned that these kids may be acquiring the virus at a much higher rate than the general population in addition to everything else,
0: wow. You know, I worry about the kids who are. I, wor- I worry about all the kids, but I worry about the kids who are in group homes and who are in residential facilities. Oh, yeah. um, oh my god! I, I was speaking um, last week, you know, and I'm I've been very very open um, the fact that we've had a son who was in a treatment facility, and we actually um, brought him home. Um, because of the virus, I you know can't say if he was ready to come home, but my baby was coming home, and if he was going to be quarantined, he's going to be quarantined with all of us. And so, um, knock on wood, it's been a really amazing two weeks. But um, one of the I I reached out to to the head of schools last week, um, to prepare his you know online learning, and they said, um, by the way, um, they are allowing no visitations whatsoever. Um, And so, mind you, most of these kids didn't get visits anyway, but now, no visitations. And so then that made me start thinking about group homes, where these are kids who are not in residential lockdown facilities or in in hospitals. They're in a group home. And um, so I reached out and found out that in our area again, they're not allowed any visitations and social workers are allowed to do virtual check-ins.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of of contact is being managed virtually. So we're seeing basically FaceTime visitations or Zoom meetings. Um, You know, you touched on something that I actually wanted to talk about today, which is that some families... Um, were effectively forced to take them to out of residential behavioral health programs and bring them home because the facilities were being forced to shut down. And so that might have been a week ago. And what we're seeing is that some kids are having a really significant rebound effect not being in their treatment programs. And so those families, not used to dealing with it on a day-to-day basis, not having access to the kind of clinical support that they would normally have, are blowing up in a big way. And so... Um, a couple of friends of mine, and I think Connie, who you've had on Connie's own, is, is doing this in Florida, are hustling to try and provide some underground support for those families because, you know, especially when you have a child who's been in a long term and perhaps is going to be in a permanent placement in that setting because of underlying conditions, those kids can't just transition into a, quote unquote, normal family setting. So, the unintended consequences of this are that, well... To take a step back and touch on something that we talked about before the show, you know, I don't think anybody really ever anticipated this kind of public health crisis in this country. I think we've all perhaps even taken for granted that we had a solid system and nothing like this could really ever happen here, but here we are. And a lot of child welfare programs are not considered essential services. So while our service stations and liquor stores and, you know, grass studying companies are staying open... So a lot of their programs are being forced to close, and those workers, most of them are working anyway because they care about the kids. But those workers are trying to provide a safety net, but the safety net has a lot of holes in it because we never really had a scenario for something that's extreme. And so, to your point, you know, you you guys are in a great spot where you can provide Jason with a lot of support, um, but. For so families that don't have the kind of solid foundation that you go, it's another
0: story. Yeah. So no, we have a, there's
2: going to be a lot of families that blow up through this and, and perhaps never go back together.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that. I mean, I, I look at the fact that, so, you know, I have one of my, and I say this therapy is the best thing in the world, but I have one son who has daily therapy, and um, that literally stopped two weeks ago. Like two weeks ago, stopped. Like he, mm-hmm. he was in a structured environment um, from seven ten in the morning until three forty five in the afternoon. Therapy every single day, and then all of a sudden, stops. Oh, the the difficult for a child like that who has gone through the trauma that he's gone through in foster care. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's just again, we're just setting these kids up to fail.
2: Well, you know, as I said to you before, you know, we're all sort of functioning adults. We have our systems around us, but just think about how much you and Dana and I and others are, I don't want to necessarily say struggling, but this is a stressful experience to go through when you're kind of on all boards, when you have a support system, when you have income, when you have health care, when you have a place to live, when you have enough to eat. And imagine what the average, say, 12-year-old in foster care feels like seeing this, you know, it's almost like being in a horror movie. And so the stress level for these kids who experience a lot of anxiety on a good day has got to just be off the charts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you're right about that. I mean, I look at me as an adult who, you know, when I said to Dana, we got to go into the center to do some podcasts because I, I mean, my mental, san- I, I'm a people person. And um, oh, I know that's right. And it's so hard for me to, and I can't imagine being a child, you know, who. I mean, for instance, in our in our county, Dana and I live in the same county. It's like, okay, they're going to start this online schooling, but nobody really knows what to do. And I'm not a teacher. And gosh, and then right. I have I have three, I have four teenagers and one who thinks he's a teenager, and I can I can't even get them to lift the toilet seat up. I mean, <laughs> right, and he, how they, are
1: you going to get them to sit and do school for a couple hours a day? I know, and I only have I have I have a 15 year old who has been staying with her dad, um, and I have a seven year old who's been with me. And I'm trying to work at home. My husband is a, works for a childcare, so they're actually still open. So he's going to work every day. My son is bouncing off the wall. I'm like, let's do a worksheet. I don't want to do a worksheet. I want to play my game, uh, you know? And like, it's uh, so stressful. But, you know, I have uh, pretty much my stuff together and it's stressful for me. So I can't even imagine for kids and families that have other things going on how difficult it is.
2: And, and the other thing, they need to remember is that for a lot of these kids, the only nutrition they get, the only safety they feel, the only structure they have is going to school. Yep, absolutely. And so being in a situation where they don't have, you know, I always say that, you know, if you have a child who's at risk for abuse and neglect, I want to have the eyes of those mandated reporters on that child. So I want school teachers to see them, crossing guards to see them, you know, people that they feel safe enough to report to, to go to with any concerns or if someone tried to take advantage of that. And this is especially true for kids that are in group home settings. So, yep. uh, you know, and I mean what kind sort of, like if, if this is group home, you know, you know, I'm from down there and we know where the group homes are down there. I and mean, you might have a group home with 50, 50 kids in it. Where's the social distancing there? It's nowhere. So it's confusing. It's confusing for regular families that have a framework and have a structure around them. But for these kids, off the charts.
0: So, Maureen, what can we do? What can we do?
2: Well, you know, I have really been thinking about that, Rob, and I think that it, it may sound simplistic, but I think it goes to some of the things that we've been talking about all along. We have to work a lot harder to keep kids out of the system or get them out of the system. So that means permanent in families. The government does not make a good parent, and the government makes an even less good parent when we're in the midst of a crisis like this. And I really honestly don't think that things will ever go back to quote-unquote normal, which means I think it's really incumbent upon us to work even harder to bring focus to permanence and keeping kids out of the system or getting them out of the system once they get there. Um, you know, I've been thinking about the, the two things question, which I won't jump ahead to, but... I think, where, where we have been talking about things like water essential services. So when we talk about that stimulus package, I'm pretty sure that there isn't a lot of emphasis in that bill for supporting nonprofits that serve kids, for instance. Um, state governments need to understand that when they're going to do some kind of an emergency order, that child welfare programs are the most essential services that they can be providing short of law enforcement and health care. We have to make sure moving forward, and I think this is a little project for us, what are the 10 things that the government needs to do to learn from this system and make sure that these kids who deserve more, not less consideration than they get on an average day, will be protected? Something like you know, if you're a 10-year-old in the system, and let's say you're living in congregate care, and let's say that something bad happens. Who do you talk to? Who do you call? Every kid should have one person that they can call in an emergency, whether it's a teacher or a crossing guard or a babysitter. Um, We're just not thinking at that level of detail. And then, of course, underneath all of this is the fact that many kids in the system are not receiving adequate health care to begin with. So, you know, I'm thinking a lot about are we making sure that these kids are getting regular medical examinations? Are they getting their vaccinations? Are they being protected in the ways that, you know, the average child can be from this kind of public health crisis? So it's a, it's a long laundry list of things, but at the end of the day, you know, we we all know that the child welfare system is a complicated proposition to begin with. And then you add a crisis like this. And honestly, I, you know, I've thought long and hard, and we've talked a little bit. Maybe 9-11 was a comparable scenario, but not really in the same way, and I think this is going to have much more long-lasting and far-reaching implications. Um, you know, what if a kid does get sick? What if that kid, most kids in the foster care system are Medicaid recipients, so that provides a certain level of care. But, you know, who's going to make their decisions? Who's going to be their health care proxy? Where can their caseworkers? So we just really haven't got this through. And I think we really have to have a lot more emphasis on, you know, what does an emergency response to this look like? You know, after Katrina, you know, New Orleans, the wonderful General Russell Honore, who was brought in to manage the response to Katrina after a number of other efforts failed. He, he's the kind of guy we need. And I'm actually, I know him. I'm not calling and uh, say, listen, what's our game plan for the child welfare system in a global in a, we'll emergency like this? We can't just leave these kids to drift around by themselves. And of course, if they get sick, the likelihood that they're going to get sicker than average is pretty good. So we've just got to we've got to have a, a different way of thinking about this.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I just I think about the number of kids in the system that are not even having the opportunity to get tested that are no one's thinking you just made the comment about you know some of them have more than 50 kids in a group home and nobody's thinking about them and nobody's sitting you know we sit down with our our family and we um we talk we talk about you know how how is our life different with now with coronavirus and what are we doing with these kids have nobody
1: Right, and the kids, I mean, yeah. it's scary. I mean, you know, my my daughter texted me and said, I'm just anxious about everything right now, and I don't know what's going on, yeah. and this is all so crazy. You know, and my son just, he's actually kind of like, I don't want to hear about the coronavirus anymore. I wish it would just yeah. go away. You know, and the anxiety yeah. that they feel, and they have parents and grandparents and be- people that can comfort them, but for these kids in the system who maybe aren't in the best foster home or who are in still in their homes yeah. that are abusive, they have nobody.
2: Right. And and actually, worse than that, think about this. When you look at the universe of kinship caregivers, they are by and large grandparents. So even though I think as we get more data about the virus, it's looking more and more like, although there are implications for older people, the outcomes are more diverse demographically than we originally thought. But, you know, let's just say that 50% of kids in foster care are in kinship care with their grandparents who are older than 60. Well, they're much higher risk right now. Um, let's say the, the kids themselves have underlying some kind of, you know, what they call comorbidities, so underlying conditions. So anything that's respiratory is going to put you at high risk, higher risk for the virus. So we know already that allergies and asthma are epidemic in this population because they're epidemic in America. So, you know, if these kids get sick, they're going to get sicker. If their caregivers die, then what happens? So, I mean, I think if I'm not even sure that the system is organized well enough right now to capture this kind of demographic information, but I do think that there has been some effort um, informally to capture it. But, like, let's take New York City as an example, because New York has been so hard hit. They have a huge population of kids in foster care, specifically in New York City, in addition to the state more broadly. And people are starting to pay attention to... What are the outcomes to kids who are living in group homes? What are the outcomes for kids who are in kinship care? You know, I mean, like, here's a scenario that a friend of ours who's an EMT said to me, said, you know, we went to make a call the other day. And this elderly gentleman, the call was made by the left, The elderly gentleman had been dead for three days. And she was just so distraught and upset and sick and probably a little bit impacted by Alzheimer's, but she didn't even call anybody. So, you know, how many kids are living with their 65, 70, 75-year-old grandparents who may or may not be able to cope with something that severe? So, I mean, you know, it's like you don't want to be alarmist, but at the same time, what this situation has shown us is that every conversation we've ever had about contingency planning and child welfare did not go far enough, did not go far enough right so, you know so when we think about what could happen if all of these things could actually happen because they're happening right now
0: yeah you know i i i don't think we're ever gonna get back to the old normal i think that you know it it was very much like 9-11 we never we never got back um prior to that and i'm i don't want people to send me these hateful emails about how i'm trying to compare this to 9-11 what i'm talking about is as a human race of how we deal with things you know um I, I, you yeah. know, I'm a hugger. I'm, I'm a, I'm a person who walks in a room and I see you and I don't care if I just met you a year ago, I'm going to mm-hmm. hug you. And I worry that, you know, we're going to, we're going to, things are just going to change so much. And when it comes to our kids in the system, they're getting being pushed down further and further in the priority list. Yeah. Well,
2: <laughs> you know, when, when people ask you what I think of the stimulus bill and you and I talk about this before the show. That bill was written by lobbyists from every major industry in America except one, the American people. And I would add to that in this context, I am pretty sure that there was almost no, if not zero input from anybody working in the foster care sector. And, you know, when you talk about 9-11, and I think, I mean, it's an analogy, I'm going to be using constantly, and I don't care if it makes people uncomfortable, because I think that, you know, just as... What was different about 9-11? What was different about 9-11 is that in sharp contrast to earlier attacks on American soil, and Pearl Harbor is a perfect example, those were attacks by organized foreign governments. 9-11 was an attack of ideology. So it was, in effect, like an intellectual virus, right? And so pushing back on 9-11 became about much more than diplomacy, much more about than than simply the old school way of managing international relations, it had to employ technology and diplomacy and a whole host of complicated um, systems had to come together. And when you think about how things like air travel changed, mail changed, all of those things, I mean, not everything that, that was done worked all that well. but. Ultimately, what I would say is that if we can make those kinds of adjustments as a country for that, and most of it was really focused on aviation security and immigration policy, we can adjust to this for children. And I think that the amount of change and the amount of impact we can have is going to be directly related to how big a voice we can put together and how much pressure was in place. And, you know, we talk about this all the time, guys. It's like, you know, who cares about kids? We pay a lot of service to kids in this country, but do we really care? And I think the answer is that people care, but they don't really understand the details. And there's a reason that they say the devil's in the details. So, like, one of the things that has been coming up a lot in child welfare discussions over the last, really, 10 or 15 years is that the system as it exists today is somewhat systemically underfunded because it, the system went through a huge period of explosive growth from 1980 to 1990 with 400 percent, but the money didn't grow it. And so, over time, there have been efforts to increase funding, to increase staffing levels, and so forth, but not really enough. I always say it was just enough to make the system a little more mediocre. Um, at the same time, today we have the opioid crisis pushing on things. Now we have the public health crisis. And there's going to be a lot of competition for very limited dollars. At the end of the day, the system gets a lot of money, doesn't get a lot of oversight. And to get more money, I think it's going to need to have more oversight. So we have to be able to demonstrate that certain things are working in order to get significantly more money. I think that we're going to see a ton of fallout from this episode that were things that people, scenarios, people never even thought about. So whether it's the mortality rate of future care providers, whether it's the mortality rate of the kids themselves, and that's the number I really want to see, because we know that these kids don't get enough health care to begin with. We know that they're underserved when it comes to preventive medicine. We know that they're overrepresented when it comes to chronic conditions and then you throw something like this in the mix. So I think it's going to be up to us to be a voice and to come together with some concrete proposals that don't just shove more money at the problem, but shove money at specific elements of the issue. And I think, as we said before, the number one thing is to keep kids out of the system one way or the other in the first place, so whether it's screening them out and keeping them from entering the system, and there's a lot of emphasis on that right now, the Family First Act, which was just implemented recently, is all about supporting families to keep kids out of the system. And But then also increasing the number of permanents at the other end of the system. We were talking about this the other day. We've got 25,000 kids who age out every year. And, they're, and, they're, and we know those kids are not doing well. You know, I could be willing to bet, but if this is quantified, those kids are going to be disproportionately hit by this virus. They're going to get sicker. They're going to die more. And who's paying attention to that? What could have prevented that? The I mean, one thing that could have prevented that was a human connection. That one person that cares about that kid. That one family that cares about that kid. We have to be able to do better. We just have to.
0: I agree. I agree. We have to do better. And we must do better. We must do better. Listen, you know what, every time I talk to you, you I learn more and more. And you just you energize me. And the fact is, is that we have to keep doing this. I I really would love Dana for us to do an update and you know, two or three weeks on. You know what's going on with the coronavirus, and are we getting any true numbers? Because I agree that you know we have to figure out. We know that the abuse is going up. We know that. I mean, the stress load that these these parents are going through, kids are coming more in the system more. We know that. You know, for the for a government to say that we're not we're a non-essential, um, you know, nonprofit when the only thing we're trying to do is give hope and dignity to our youth in foster care, proved to me right then and. There, we don't matter to them. And we have to make sure that we can change that. So, listen, as we finish all of our podcasts, we do it the same exact way. And, Dana, you know the drill.
1: Yes. Um, so, if you could change two things about the foster care
2: system, what would they be? I would make sure that every single child in the system has an emergency phone number. That one adult that they can call if something goes wrong it can be their caseworker, can be their school teacher. Can be their school crossing guard, but every child needs to have one contact that can help them if some emergency happens. The second thing is that what this virus is, I think, telling everybody is that we have to have better and more effective emergency procedures. And I think that the child welfare system lacks thought on a good day, and this is not a good day. So we have to develop a strategy and action plan for how to protect children in the system as these public health problems continue to swing out of control. Those are my two things for today. Thank you.
0: I love it. I love it. Listen, stay safe. You know, please, you please, please self-distance for you and your husband. Um, I love you so much, and I'm so lucky to call you my friend, and we'll be talking Aww. again real soon. Take care.
1: Thanks, Maureen. I love you guys. Keep up the great work. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye.
0: Dana and I would like to thank all of you for listening to the Fostering Change podcast.
1: You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Make sure you follow Comfort Cases on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Comfort Cases. And check out the Fostering Change blog at comfortcases.org.
0: So everybody, we want to hear your stories. So reach out to us if you would like to be a guest on the podcast. You can find me on Facebook at Rob shear Instagram at Rob underscore Scheer, and on Twitter at Rob Scheer 6.
2: And
1: please share this podcast and leave us a review.
0: Remember, we're all part of the same community. Your zip code, it's not your community, but it's our human race. Let's all make a difference.